hear me? There we go. Um, it doesn't seem possible that September 11th was 21 years ago. Till I realized I've been a pastor for 20 years. And uh, I remember that morning very well. Uh, but so thankful that God is gracious. And um, our hope is always in Jesus. And so Pastor Sean in my prayer this morning was, God, bring us back to that place of revival and renewal. If you remember, we sought his face when we didn't have those answers in that tragedy. And uh, I want us to, to seek his face even when things aren't tragic. Uh, today's message is on Zechariah chapter 12. And um, I don't know about you, but when I'm doing a book study or, or preaching a sermon series, when you get to those later chapters, you tend to get a little bit of, of fatigue, right? Like, I'm ready for the next book. Um, but what God has been showing me is, uh, especially in Zechariah, some of these later chapters have so much uh, meat to it that, that you can't just start something else. You've you got to complete what you've started. And, um, and so today we're going to talk about how you approach a prophetic word in Scripture. Uh, anytime you approach a prophetic word in Scripture, you always run the risk of misinterpreting it. And so I want to share with you some guidelines I follow when looking at a prophetic word in Scripture. The first is the prophecy always pertains to the people in which it was directly written. This is something that I learned in seminary that was always so helpful to me. Is in Scripture, when, when people are receiving a message and there's a prophet sent to them and he's, and he's delivering a message to them, there's part of that that always pertains to the people and the time period and the situation that they find themselves in. And so that doesn't mean that all the things prophesied will occur in their lifetime, but it does mean that the knowledge of the present and future events is given to them specifically by God. And so they are the recipients of the message. The message is catered to them. The second is, I look for specific historical events when these prophecies occurred. A good example of this is, again, the book of Daniel, you know, where you have Daniel saying, with, with, when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream with the gold head and the silver shoulders and the bronze waist and clay and iron and all the way down, they actually get in that prophecy a fulfillment that you are the golden empire and then from you will come other empires. And, and so you get a, a definition of that. So we see the, the, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Medes and the Persians and the Romans and then the Roman city-states. You have all of that kind of breaking down in a dream. And so what I do especially as we're looking at Zechariah, which is one of the last books of the Old Testament, is I look at the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What kind of things are happening there historically? I look at the New Testament. Is there a, a prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament? I don't jump all the way to 2022 and say, okay, how does this apply to us? We look at what's happened historically between when it was written and, and uh, what happened following the third thing is be careful not to equate everything God prophesied to the nation of Israel as equal to his prophecies for the church. And, and this is where it gets the most dangerous, right? Is this day and age we live in, there's lots of prophets. There's lots of people saying things. Um, YouTube videos and, and other things. And so often where we can get off track is we see prophecies that are given directly to the nation of Israel and we think, oh, this applies to the church as well. Well, that's not always the case. And so we need to be careful that, that the prophecies that we're interpreting are meant for only them and not for us. 
Okay, so you've got to be careful of that. And finally, look for biblical truths and promises that are eternal. Everything in Scripture that you read, whether it was written for you or directly applied to you, there's always eternal truths that you can, can mine out of the Scripture that, that are true because God's character never changes. His word is true no matter what. And so whether or not you can directly apply the full fullness of that prophecy to your life, at least you can hold on to the truth that God's saying, that the, 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 the core nuggets. And so that's where we don't throw away prophetic books. We're like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. No, there's always something in there that does. You just have to mine it out. So with that said, uh, I just want to give you a warning to just be, be careful with modern prophets. Check their heart. Check their approach. A true prophet does not seek to make a name for himself or herself. They don't become prideful. They don't become arrogant. And if you've not been theologically trained or have a deep understanding of scriptures, these individuals can present their, their interpretations and their prophetic words, and they can back it up with scripture. But again, it's not always meant for us today. So what I want you to do as, as people of the church is focus on God's character and his never-ending quality. Where there can be conf confusion, where you can say, I'm not sure if this person's telling me the truth, or, or you know, they gave a prophecy for next year, or, or how things are going to go about. Listen, focus on who God is. Focus on his character and his promises. And there are certain promises that are true. That he is going to come back on the clouds. That there's going to be a trumpet noise, the, the proclamation of the groom coming for his bride that will be heard across the world. That the dead in Christ will rise first, that, that our, the church will have to face a future generations where we're going we're gonna to be hated by the world. Where the, the world's going to feel justified when they kill us, but, but that's okay because God is in control. And so it's a very confusing time and we're wanting to seek for answers but the answers that we clearly have all the time is that God is who he says he is and his promises are true. So with that, we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 12. Uh, I love how so many of these prophecies in this book are fulfilled in Jesus. And today we're going to see how this prophecy is fulfilled as well. Zechariah chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. This message concerning the fate of Israel came from the Lord. This message is from the Lord who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and formed the human spirit. I will make Jerusalem like an intoxicating drink that makes the nearby nations stagger when they send their armies to besiege Jerusalem and Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. All the nations will gather against it to try to move it, but they will only hurt themselves. Let's begin with the fact that this prophecy... Uh, is established by God, and he's making sure that it's clear to us that it's going to happen. How does he do that? Well, he does it by the introduction. He says, I'm the same God that stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth, and formed the human spirit. Now, have you ever had an argument with someone where you're trying to establish the validity of your perspective and why something should work a certain way, only to get blown out of the water by their response? So let me create a scenario for you. Let's say I'm in a discussion with someone about a board game. We have a board game laid out in front of us, and I'm sitting there in front of them, and I'm saying, I know what the rules say, but I've played this game for 10 years, 
and I've played it the same way for 10 years and it works great. And so I'm seeking to validate my viewpoint by showing that my experience and the my time with the game makes my argument true, right? So played it for 10 years, my family's played it this way, it works. And the person responds with, well, that's great, that's wonderful, I'm glad you've enjoyed the game, but I invented it. And I designed it to be played this way, and this is how it should work. There's no response to that, right? They invented the game, they know how it works, I can say what I want, but ultimately they have the final say-so. That's what God's saying here. He's saying, you may argue with what I'm about to say to you, but listen, I, I created everything that you can see and hear and experience. And by the way, I created you. So believe me when I tell you this is going to happen. So when God begins a prophecy like this, he's just kind of laying it out. Don't argue with me. This is going to happen. I'm in charge. And the prophecy begins with God promising that Jerusalem will be like an intoxicating drink to the nations. Now what does this mean? I, I think it means that they're going to want to own it and control it, even when it doesn't make sense. But they're not going to be able to have it. God will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. And anyone who tries to gather against it will only hurt themselves. Now, historically, this is true when we look at the intertestamental period. That's that 400 years between the Old Testament and the New, New Testament. There's going to be the rise and fall of many nations and superpowers who come after Israel and Jerusalem, seeking to control it. But Israel will outlast them all. The Persians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Syrians, and the Romans will all take their turn besieging Jerusalem in that 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. But the people of Israel and Jerusalem will endure. It isn't until 70 AD, after the time of Christ, when the Romans finally get fed up with the Jews and they besiege Jerusalem again and destroy the temple. After that is a period called the Diaspora, which means dispersed. And this is when the Jews were dispersed throughout the nations and became spread out throughout the world. Um, the Roman writer Cassius Dio wrote sometime around 200 AD, 580,000 men were slain in various raids and battles, and the number of those that perished by famine, disease, and fire were past finding out. Thus, nearly the whole of Judea was made desolate. So you hear that, and you think, well, how does that match up with what we read here? That nations will, will be like, like drunk when they try to attack Jerusalem, and, and they'll try to crush it and destroy it, but Jerusalem will become an immovable rock. Remember when this prophecy was given to the people 400 years before the coming of Christ. And the facts show that the nation of Israel still withstood all the attacks within those 400 years. When Jesus arrived, uh, you know, at the, at, the, at the turning of B.C. to A.D., somewhere in there, Jerusalem was still there. The temple was still there. The people had survived all those onslaughts. Um, and Jerusalem would become an immovable rock as nations would seek to control the city. And they would endure. In fact, Jerusalem still stood. You know, you, uh, I spent some, a couple weeks in Israel a few years back with Pastor Sean. And, and there are places you can visit where there are no cities anymore. Uh, where there's just rubble. It's, they call it a tell because a, a mound has kind of grown up over where that city used to be. Jerusalem is still there. There are parts of, of even David's wall that you can visit. 
you can still see that, that western wall. It, it still exists. And, and so uh, even when, when Jerusalem or Israel became a nation again in 1948, they were able to come back to Jerusalem. And so we see that this prophecy is true, that Jerusalem was not decimated and destroyed, but it remained throughout all those centuries. So what do we take from these three verses as Christian believers in 2022 who live in the United States? What's that golden nugget of truth since it doesn't really seem to apply to us? God's people will face hardship and challenges, but God's good purposes and plans endure. That's what we can take from that. Are we going to face hardships? Are we going to face challenges? Today's 9-11. Yes, we will. Yes, there will be onslaughts. There will be things that are attacking Christians individually that will attack the nation in which we live. But God's purposes and plans endure. No matter who's in office, no matter who's in power, no matter what decisions are made that are outside of your control, we have a faithful God. So anyone who sets themselves against God and his plan for his people will eventually hurt themselves. It may seem like the bad guys are winning, but we know whether it happens in their lifetime or our lifetime or not, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this is a message for us for endurance. Tough days ahead. Those of you that remember 2001, the world is vastly different, isn't it? To what the world was like then. God's created us an endurance in us. And we've been through 2020 and 2021. And now we're in 2022. No matter what 2023 brings. God is faithful. And his people who seek his face. His word endures forever. We will not only survive. But we will thrive with the power of Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. Verses 4 through 6. On that day, says the Lord, I will cause every horse to panic and every rider to lose his nerve. I will watch over the people of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of their, of their enemies. And the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the people of Jerusalem have found strength in the Lord of heaven's armies, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a flame that sets a woodpile ablaze or like a burning torch among sheaves of grain. They will burn up all the neighboring nations right and left while the people living in Jerusalem remain secure. Now that phrase comes up. It's the second time we've seen it. On that day. And it's repeated multiple times in the passage. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is going to happen in a single day. That's a failure of our translation in English. What it's trying to convey is that God has the day and the moment planned and that nothing will occur outside of his timing. So we don't know the day or the hour, but God is saying, on the day that I have designated, on the moment that I have planned, this will occur. And that's encouraging, guys. Now let me remind you once again that God is telling us, I got this. This is what I'm going to do. We know we've talked about in Zechariah the theme being, don't discount small beginnings, right? Look to the future. But another theme that we've seen throughout Zechariah is God saying, I will do this. And once again, we see this. He says, I will make Jerusalem like an intoxicating drink. I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. I will cause every horse to panic and every rider to lose his nerve. I will watch over you. I will blind the horses of the enemy. 
I will make the clans of Judah like a flame. I will, I will, I will. That's encouraging. God's not some bystander. You know, like, like, like some agnostics believe that he created this world and then he just left it alone and we don't know. No, God is actively working and moving for our benefit. He's saying, I am going to do this. And what's our part? The same part as Jerusalem and Judea in this passage. We find our strength in the Lord of Heaven's armies. God has this. I can't always see what he's doing. From my perspective, it seems like our enemy is going to come crashing in. But no, he said, I will do this. So we don't need to be afraid when we face trouble or hostility. God promises that he has us and that he will do what needs to be done. Now, this prophecy could be an end times prophecy. Because what is happening here doesn't seem to be happening in any world history or any record of any field of battle, Israel hasn't burned up their neighboring nations in war. But there are some elements in this passage that point to something that has already occurred. You remember a couple of years ago now, we studied the book of Acts. And in Acts 2, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he told the disciples to remain in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. And as they gathered together seeking God's face, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind that comes and there's flames of fire that appear above each head and they go out and start preaching biblical truth and boldness and everyone understands their message in, in their native tongue. There are, are God-fearing Jews and, and God-fearing uh, nationals who have gathered um, at, at, in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and so there are many nations represented there in that moment, and uh, they hear his message. So let's look at Zechariah chapter 12 in light of Acts chapter 2. Zechariah 12, I will make Jerusalem like an intoxicating drink, Acts 2.13. But others say in the crowd, ridiculing them, saying they're just drunk, that's all. On that day I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. Matthew 16, 18. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will make the claims of Judah like a flame that sets a wood pile ablaze, or like a burning torch among sheaves of grain. They will burn up all the na neighboring nations right and left, while the people living in Jerusalem remain secure. Acts 2, 3. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Acts 2.11. And we hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. Acts 2.41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. God set Jerusalem and Judea ablaze. And the, and the neighboring nations were conquered, not with sword and shield, but by the power of God, the grace and power of the Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He does it His way, and we are safe in His hands. And if you remember, again, the context of that moment, the disciples and the followers of Jesus are gathered in one place. They're dedicated to prayer, but they're fearful, right? The Messiah has, has been killed and yet he's risen from the dead, and yet there's still a bounty on their heads. They are, they are target number one. 
And yet in this moment, as the Holy Spirit falls upon them, they leave where they were meeting boldly and loudly proclaim the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. And those who are surrounded become believers, over 3,000 in all. Verses 7 through 9, the Lord will give victory to the rest of Judah first before Jerusalem so that the people of Jerusalem and the royal line of David will not have greater honor than the rest of Judah. On that day, the Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem. The weakest among them will be as mighty as King David, and the royal descendants will be like God, like the angel of the Lord who goes before them. For on that day, I will begin to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I love this passage because the move of God will not come from the seats of power. It won't come like in our nation. It wouldn't come from Washington, D.C. on down, but at the grassroots level. It'll come from God working and moving in the common people. Why? So the line of David will not have greater honor than the rest of Judah. And so we know that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited king in the line of David. But he wasn't born in a palace. He was literally born in the town of Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem. A a town that wouldn't be remembered at all if it weren't for King David. And he was born, as we've talked before, in a barn. The grassroots. And so the one part of this passage that, that seems a little odd and a little off and can be grossly misinterpreted uh, is, um, is the, this verse here that says, um, and the royal descendants will be like God, like the angel of the Lord who goes before them. And so we see here that literally the king that would come would be God himself, born as the most uncommon commoner. <laughs> literally, God would be like us. Since Jesus' death and resurrection, God has been creating a new covenant people. A people not decided by birth or race, but by the choice of the believer to follow and believe Jesus. And Jesus' destruction to the nations is a destruction of the division that sin caused as it separates people equally made in the image of God. And so when God conquers... He doesn't conquer in ways that don't last. He conquers in ways that last eternally as he conquers our hearts and our spirit and our soul. And so those of every nation, tongue, and people group have the availability to become part of the people of God. Ultimately, the victory was won in Jerusalem as Jesus died on a cross in the very place prophesied centuries before. And so Jesus' death showed that he came for all people, whether rich or poor, Criminal or unconvicted. I, I, I wrote that intentionally. Criminal or unconvicted. Because we're all criminals. Let's just be honest here. We're all captives of sin before Jesus saves us. We've just not been convicted yet. His victory was total and complete for everyone. And so this prophecy, although it's directed at this moment to the people in Israel 400 years prior to Jesus coming, is a prophecy that's to all of us. Even those that he would once conquer. I'm so glad that God conquered my heart. Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. 
They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. The sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem on that day will be like the great mourning of Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. All Israel will mourn, each clan by itself and with the husbands separate from the wives. The clan of David will mourn alone as will the clan of Nathan, the clan of Levi, and the clan of Shimei. Each of the surviving clans from Judah will mourn separately and with their husbands separate from their wives. Here we get the clearest truth that this passage pertains to Jesus' coming. As verse 10 says, Then I will pour out my spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and the people of Jerusalem. Isn't that Acts 10? Where his Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. God's very presence with every individual who seek him. A spirit of grace, a spirit of prayer, a spirit of closeness. And that's what I mean. think it means by the spirit of prayer. The proximity of God. That God will not be distant by time or space anymore, but we will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if I really need to pull out the other prophetic elements, here they are. That, that he says, here uh, the people will look on me. God is talking about himself. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. Jesus was the only begotten son, the eternal only begotten son of the Father. And we know that when this prophecy was made 400 years later, that that victory was won solely through Jesus' death. With great sorrow, God died our death willingly and unfairly. And yet it's because of his death and eventual resurrection the rest of the prophecy will come true. That moment of great mourning brought life to everyone. So, why mention the different groups mourning here, the clans of David and Nathan and Levi and Shimei? Well, this grief shows that it'll be a grief that spreads not just those in power, but also, so you got the, 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 the tribes of kings and the tribe of priests. And so Jesus, it speaks again to the fact that he is both king and priest eternally. Why men and women separated in their grief? I think it's not so much about the separation, but the fact that this kind of experience needs to be done individually. And so we see that Jesus, even in his resurrection, ministers to the women first that find him the empty tomb, and, and then meet him personally, and then it goes on to his disciples and others. And so Jesus' sacrifice was for all, but has to be experienced and received personally and internally. So we see earlier in the passage that it's a movement of God at the grassroots level, and Jesus' ministry as he was born in a stable and then lived in Nazareth, and even the calling of Nathaniel, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus' move of the Holy Spirit, his ministry predominantly was in Galilee, was predominantly to the least and the lowly, and then, then in Jerusalem his sacrifice was for all. We see that all of these elements add up to the picture that we get in Christ. The victory and hope in this passage is sure, simply because it's already been won. Now, when it was first written... Jesus hadn't come. Now that we read it, it's won. It's won. We stand in victory today because there's an empty tomb. And God says time and time again, I will do it. 
and we see in Jesus that he already did it. So in the midst of our future challenges, we need to remember that victory has been won through Jesus' love and compassion, his grace to forgive, and his power to redeem. So four things I want to leave you with today. Number one, God is in charge. And what he says has and will happen. So we can trust him. He's proven himself faithful. What promise in scripture hasn't he already done or fulfilled? God will do it and has done it. And it's in his strength that we stand and believe. God's people, especially in this season, we can't be tossed by every wind and wave. We need to, to, to not be so moved by what we see on the news or social media. We need to allow God's word to be the first source of truth and the predominant source of truth and the foundation for everything we believe. And so we need to stand in victory. Number three, God conquers and builds his kingdom through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He does it his way and we are safe in his hands. When you're concerned or fearful or doubt comes in, let me remind you to look upon the cross. The cross is our assurance of hope for all of eternity. And so if you're having a moment of doubt or fear, either personally or on a, a national level or whatever else, you know, if we ever have to face, God forbid, a situation like 9-11 again, how will we do it? Because the cross exists. Number four, God's victory is for everyone and is to be received and experienced by everyone. So, 21 years after 9-11, in a George Bush speech, he said, those who have done this atrocious act will hear us as well. There's going to be repercussions. And we, the church, our heart and attitude to those that have hated us and harmed us and rejected us is to look like Jesus once more. To not attack with sword and shield, but to give them the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Where those who were once our enemy will be our brother. And we've already seen that in Zechariah. I will make your enemies your brothers and sisters, your family. And, and, the, and Psalm 23 God will prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Those who were once our enemies, through the grace and power of Jesus Christ, will be our friends. And so that's our heart and attitude, guys. And so here's a, a, just a, a basic teaching. I know it was more of a teaching than a sermon, but this is how we approach a prophetic word. We see its context, how it was fulfilled in history, and we pull the truth that applies to us and we live and we stand in its hope. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word today. A word that's timely based on what we're experiencing and remembering as we uh, honor those that, that died on September 11, 2001. And those that sacrificed much, Lord God, to bring uh, freedom and balance to our country. But Lord, even more than that, we remember the fact that prior to that, as prophesied in Zechariah, and what occurred over close to 2,000 years ago, Jesus, was your own death on a cross and resurrection 
so that we can have a hope and a peace no matter what this world may throw our direction. That you are a rock and that the good things that happen in our life, the freedom, the joy that we experience is done by your good work. You will do it. And it's our job to to walk in that, to trust in that. And so no matter what we're facing today, Lord, we lay it down before you and believe that you have done it and you'll do it again. In your name we pray. Amen.